Hey everybody, it's the Fear the Fro Fuck That Guy LP. There's literally no structure to this. It's just a laundry list of people I hate. Thank you. Like and subscribe. Joel Embiid, MVP of Fraudulency. Can we retroactively give Joe Kitch the series of three? Playoff Pumpkins. He's your guy. Where NBA title dreams come to talk. James and Ben form a scapegoat line. Your fault. This is totally fine, I'm told. He's bogus. Can we get a fourth quarter? We would notice. Nope. What a letdown. Could you maybe show up in the second round? Ooh, what about Scotty B? Won the rookie of the year, even beat Mobley. He can pass the ball. He's really young. He can't shoot. What's the end game? A worse Siaka? Dribble, dribble, pick and roll, except everyone goes undercut. The jumper blow. Run the offense? That's your plan? It's fucking awful. Lottery bound again. A novelty, his only accolade was a fucking robbery. No, he's not a point guard, his ceiling is a mediocre try hard. Okay, here's where shit gets a little weird. Now, Joel Embiid, Scotty Barnes, those are players I legitimately hate. First team, all hate, but there's plenty of players I have grievances with. These are just less relevant, so I'm just gonna shotgun all this shit out here in one little verse. Jay Crowder, he knows how to win. He knows how to win. Okay, he's a co-tail captain. Miami, Phoenix, now the Bucks. Is there a contending roster whose dick he wouldn't suck? Minimum deal, cause GMs know that he has little appeal. Here's a back fist. Welcome to the IR in my shit list. Next up, Shay down in OKC. Many like this guy, unfortunately. Man lives at the line, he's a grifter king. A six foot six guard who can't get dinged. Canadian, a dribbling Meryl Streep is how I'd label him. To the lottery, before we crown him, could his team not suck entirely? Okay, I think that's good. I think I've covered my bases. Thank you. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast, friends. It is I, Bob Schmidt, lifelong Cavs fan, host of this podcast, voice of Fox Sports Radio. I know, coming into, it's preseason. It's a happy time. The season's began. It's a time for joy, getting to see all the new developments. We'll get into all of that, all the players in preseason, the different lineups, the options, the plethora of options J.B. Bickerstaff has at his disposal. And I come in with a, well, not even passive-aggressive, aggressive-aggressive song. But preseason is the time to make predictions so that later on I can come back and I can say, see, look how much worth I have as a human being. That thing I said about basketball 12 months ago that nobody remembers, I was right. And I need to get a recording in place because I believe I'm ahead of the curve on my disdain for Shea Gilgis-Alexander. It is not a storyline that I see out there. However, I feel that I was early to the he's a goddamn grifter party. And I think everybody will eventually arrive there. So of all the takes that are critical to be recorded before they become mainstream, the resentment for Shea is one of them. This is my theory. He's avoided criticism because he's a new star, relatively speaking. Shot to the top of the all-NBA list last year, and his team sucks, so there's no reason to view them as a threat until they get good. But this is the year the expectations are on them. So this is the year they'll break out and people will start to see him on a much more national level for what he is, which is a grifty, 
McGrifter. So, now should I be worried that people are going to call me out for my disproportionate level of hate towards Canadians? Perhaps, but I think with world events in the state that they are, as long as no one on my list is Israeli or Palestinian, I can smooth sail my way right past this. But in addition to my soon-to-be great takes, I also wanted to highlight my failures. Something my wife is exceptional at. And here's a few things I learned, by the way. One is don't clip your toenails in the kitchen. Now, you may be saying to yourself, I'm with your wife on that one. That's fucking disgusting. But first, hear me out. Let me make my case. The garbage can in the kitchen is tall enough so that I can essentially clip my nails without having to be able to bend down and touch my toes. I can lift my foot up. I can place it on the rim of the garbage can. It is large. I clip them right into it. They don't end up in any food prep services, not services, surfaces. I realize there's some people who think it's disgusting, but it's a part of my body, all right? And when you signed up to marry me, you signed up to love me for all that I am. Now, I realize you as a podcast listener did not sign up to marry me, and you may think I'm disgusting. Well, what I would ask you, listener, is when did it become okay for you to shame a part of my body? Hmm? My toenails are beautiful. And quite frankly, toenail acceptance is part of this season's agenda. Now, in the bathroom upstairs, where she would prefer I clip my toenails, the garbage can is roughly the size of a big gulp cup. It's always overflowing. With feminine hygiene products, perhaps hair, if I've shaved it off various parts of my body, where else do you put it? I don't flush that down the toilet. It could clog it, so I throw it in there. But the point is, there's no room for nail clippings. And certainly, if I clip them in the manner that I'm accustomed, which is put my foot as high up as I possibly can so that I can see my nails, because I also have old-ass eyeballs. I can't see what the fuck I'm doing, guys. That's my defense. I'm going to rest my case. I think any jury of my peers would side with me. That, you know what, if you want me to clip my nails in the bathroom trash can, it needs to be an acceptably sized bathroom trash can. And before you start saying, well, go buy a bigger trash can, why is it on me? Hmm? I'm not the one who's disgusted by my toenails. If you are, the onus is on you to buy a trash can in which to clip them. But this is not how I intended to start this podcast. Let's get into Cavalier basketball, shall we? Dean Wade, he's not an impressive physically specimen guy. How dare you? Hey! Knocks it down! You got the trip! Dean Wade's the drippiest Dean. He's the drippiest damn small forward you've ever seen. He got that trip. And he's a scoring machine. The 3 and D undrafted free agent development dream. His name is Drip. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. What better way to kick things off than to acknowledge what we just saw out there tonight? The story of the night, as far as I'm concerned. Now, some of you may disagree. You may say it was Darius Garland and his six for six shooting and his 17 points in the first quarter before he played limited minutes. But I would posit that the actual best story of the night was Dean Wade continuing his strong play from game one of the preseason, but this time doing it in more minutes. Now, knock down a couple triples game one, but tonight was a Dean Wade masterclass. 14 points, six boards, a couple of offensive rebounds, and four for six from beyond the arc, including three for three to begin it. So he had plenty of dribbles. I don't know if anybody said that. They probably have, but that's what I'm calling them. I don't really care about the final score. 
it was impressive to see the Cavaliers rally, had a 13-0 run at one point in the fourth quarter. Amani Bates taking those big dick shots, knocked down three triples of his own, including one late, which cut the lead to just three points, but not enough time. A pass into the post to Mobley was stolen to close out the game, and the Magic held on to win it. But what are the takeaways here? We know Darius Garland is capable of incredible offensive explosions. You saw a bit of a reverse from game one of the preseason as the struggles that Garland had were passed on to Donovan Mitchell, who was just three for 14 from the floor tonight. But Evan Mobley, a second straight, very solid, not spectacular, but very good performance. The idea of using him as a hub, given what we saw from the ancillary pieces tonight, is tantalizing. Dean Wade with George Nyang, with Imani Bates, with Max Struess, all chipping in multiple threes, another game in excess of 40 attempts from outside the arc. 44 tonight to go along with 48 in that first game. It is quite apparent pace, quick passing, moving without the ball are huge priorities. There are a few trends which I'm very curious to monitor as we head into the regular season in terms of how these additions will impact the other players. We all heard that Evan Mobley is going to have the ball in his hands a lot more, and we're seeing that. But I think while I'm not necessarily confident that his post-offense is going to make some drastic leap, I do think Evan Mobley has consistently proven that he's one of the smartest players in terms of his patience, his court awareness, his understanding of where to be on the floor to give his guys outlets alley-oops, dump-off passes, things of that nature. And this offense, this pace is moving so fast, there are bound to be more breakdowns on the other end. So much of our issues in the postseason last year is that we have two very versatile scores in Garland and Mitchell, but there was too much put on their shoulders to have to break down everyone by themselves. And I think guys fatigue that way. I think their three-point shooting can sometimes be adversely affected that way. And to get extra pace, to get guys moving off ball, to give us more options for if people get stuck, then simply to go back to Evan and Jared for pick and roll after pick and roll will be massive. Not to mention, if I had one criticism last year, it's that Evan doesn't always set the best screens. And even Jared doesn't always set the best screens. So to diversify the offense will be a welcome sight. I'll deal with the misses from three-point range so long as people are taking the looks where they have the space. And the the one thing you can't say about Struess and Yang is that they'll hesitate. You won't get any of that, well, should I take this, that you get from guys like Stevens and Okoro. Even Okoro has shown himself to be more confident. And I think there's something that comes with the idea that the Cavaliers are okay with taking this high volume of shots from outside the arc that takes a lot of pressure off the individual guys to not have to overthink misses. Because also, the pace is so fast, we're moving on. you got to focus on getting back. I thought Orlando did a pretty good job of pressing transition early on in the game to try to do much of the same to the Cavs, to get them on their heels, to take advantage of their size and try to get the guards exposed before the bigs could get back. Now, Anthony Black was perhaps too aggressive, the first-year guard out of Arkansas, 6'7", thought that challenging Mobley would be a good thing, and Mobley multiple times changed his shot, blocked his shot at the rim until he checked out of the game. We finally saw a black bucket at the rim when Tristan was the primary rim defender. Now, one more thing I wanted to talk about with Mobley. I feel like over these first two games, his handle 
seems to have tightened considerably. Last year, sometimes when he would get the ball, his dribble seemed much higher than it seems now. Maybe it's just the fact that it's preseason and he's not playing against the type of defenders who we'll see in the starting lineups, but I think his handle's better. Not a single turnover tonight. And only one turnover in game one. For a guy to touch the ball more and turn it over less, that's huge. I was fully preparing myself for a lot of needless turnovers as guys get used to where Struess and Yang want the ball because they're such movement-based guys. We've seen plenty of times where you throw the ball where you think someone's going to be, but they cut the other way. I was expecting more of that, and so far, it really hasn't been that bad. If anything, most of the confusion seems to come when guys run up to set screens only to have Garland or Mitchell kind of drive it to where they are. But that'll get better as we go along here. Let's move on to the backup point guard position because throw the Donovan Mitchell game in the garbage, even Darius Garland, incredibly hot, but didn't need to do much after that first quarter. So we got to see a decent amount of the guys who could be, you know, spots seven to 11 on the roster. And I thought Ty Jerome put together an excellent first half. He, of course, had his foul troubles in game one, not getting a very favorable whistle from the ref, but that's bound to happen when you're playing a grifter like Trey Young. I was exceptionally pleased. I thought he got a lot longer leash from JB in terms of probing, having the ball in his hands, initiating the offense, finding his way into the middle of the lane. His floater is something that we've all heard about in the scouting reports and seen, but to see him try to get to that mid-range, to draw some fouls, to find some guys on toss-back threes as he got to the lane, as he got to the top of the key. Our backup point guard situation, I thought looked very good tonight. And then when we got to garbage time, Craig Porter Jr., good God, that man has a knack for creating contact. He got to the line, four free throws tonight, led the team, and he played just eight minutes, not to mention two offensive rebounds, one off of a free throw and another, which he wrestled away from Mac McClung, despite his diminutive size in terms of he's no Anthony Black, he's no six foot seven, but his body control his strength, his understanding of of leverage and balance and how to use his body to get guys off balance is well beyond his years, well beyond his station on this team. So all those things, in addition to the fact that Amani Bates showed his typical lack of fear in the moment. Now, Amani Bates, amazing in his first game. I thought this one was slightly more muted, but at the end of the day, when the Cavs made that run late in the game to almost snatch a victory away from the Orlando Magic the way that the Hawks did with us, Amani Bates was the one doing the scoring. Two triples in that 13-0 run, unafraid of the moment, and finished the game with 12 points and four rebounds. Now, I was as big of a Bates pick detractor as anybody. I own that. I profiled guys like Kobe Brown and Jalen Wilson and Gigi Jackson and Hunter Tyson. If I'm being truthful, I probably would have taken any one of them before Bates. But I am happy to be watching this and feeling like, yeah, that's the wrong call. There's just something about the confidence that you can see in Bates' scoring or that you can see in Craig Porter Jr.'s crashing the glass. These feel like guys who believe they belong. The willingness to embrace and take shots that come to you, our team as a whole, the ceiling is so much higher. Now, I'm fully preparing myself for some brutal ass kickings. If we become a team that lives and dies by the three to a certain extent, I'm prepared for nights where we're just stone cold and we get cooked because of it. But I would rather operate on a a more highly variable 
offense than I would just pick and rolling people to death. Darius and Donovan are amazing. Donovan had a career year in terms of his efficiency. I don't want to act like a two-game preseason sample. Where we've lost both games is somehow enough of a sample for me to just say, okay, the offensive movement, it's going to change everything. But I have faith that if we can implement this offense and stick with it, that the ceiling in the playoffs and our ability to make adjustments to either play big or play small exist in a way that they did not last year. We had to keep trotting out Jared Allen despite the fact that as the series wore on, games three, games four, games five, he turtled. But last year, it felt like we were too shallow to deviate from our game plan. We just had to hope that we would execute it better. And now to have an alternative, I think it will prove massively valuable. Now, Levert didn't play tonight. I thought Levert was absolutely fantastic in the limited minutes he played in game one. It got lost because of Bates' late explosion, but he looked incredible in this movement offense. How much of this will translate to the regular season? For those who live through the Blatt era, we were told, okay, well, this is going to change. We're going to move the ball more. And then, of course, it became four out with LeBron and then Black getting fired. But that being said, I don't think that's a fair comparison because obviously there isn't a LeBron on this roster. And this is much more of a sum of your parts team than it ever was, you know, superstar dragging everyone along. I think it absolutely could happen where JB has the continuity, has the buy-in that he could implement this. There has to be a sour taste in the mouth of even our best players based on what happened in the postseason. Because it also happens that the guys he's brought in are veterans who came from very successful situations. It's a lot easier to get guys to embrace something when they respect the people delivering the message. Yes, there were times we could just overwhelm teams on the glass and win with a Mobley and Jared Allen. And I'm the biggest Allen proponent there is. I think he's extremely necessary. For Altman, I don't condone, however I understand, why he would be drunk on a random night during the offseason, knowing that he was able to bring in Struess, Nyang, Jerome, all without giving up Allen. I think it's very underrated. And by the end of the season, the same detractors who were advocating giving up an Allen for some over-the-hill shooter like Tim Hardaway Jr. are going to flip the script. And they're going to say, no, I never wanted to trade him. This is so much better because now we do happen to have some redundancy in an area we never thought we'd have redundancy in, which was shooting off the bench. We look stacked now. Merrill hasn't even played good. But to know that Bates is in the developmental system, to have Struess, to have Nyang, to have Wade looking healthy. Okoro, take away what you want. The first game, obviously great. The second game, not so good. But he seems more confident. And if there's a system built to play to his strengths, it's one which allows us to get out and run because he is excellent at creating contact if he gets the ability to get a guy backpedaling as he heads towards the rim. That is a strength of Mobley. Or sorry, not Mobley, Okoro, excuse me. And that is one of the things that I am eager to see the benefits as we play in this much more higher-paced offense. There's just something about having guys who have the confidence to take the shots now. Because so much of our bench, it was got, we were begging Dean to take more shots. We begged for Okoro to be more assertive on offense. Lamar Stevens, hell, even Darius Garland, we've been screaming, take more threes. How many of you, after watching these first two preseason games, feel like that's going to be an issue anymore? To piss in the cereal, just a bit. I still don't know that I believe Imani Bates is going to have a huge role because... 
We're two preseason games in, and he's yet to play any meaningful minutes with the guys that matter the most. But I do think he's shown enough to make me completely confident that within this system, so far, we're being validated for taking a pick, which seemed risky based on all the character stories, the transfer, the, you know, only playing in a small school situation. That is not even a concern anymore. My concern was not necessarily his scoring. It was two things. It was his ability to operate off the ball. And while he hasn't been put in situations with the starters, which I think is the real test for a guy like Bates to see, can he thrive as more of a you know spot-up guy or a role guy taking advantage of attention being paid to others. I don't think JB's doing us a service in that regard, playing him in these garbage time lineups. I do think preseason would be a nice time to see how he operates around the better guys. Even if he's not going to be on the main roster during the season, the biggest thing for his development is I think he's already proven the shot will translate. And if anything, worrying about his percentages in college where he was defended very tightly and had very little help around him, this guy's completely capable and he will benefit greatly from NBA defenses keen on other players and not him. What I wanted to see from him, his defense and his ability to subject his personal penchant for gunning to better offensive options if and when he gets the chance to play alongside those. The report card is incomplete in that regard, but I do think what we're seeing is when he's put alongside a lot of other talent, the looks he's getting, he can knock down shots at a relatively proficient level. And I think it only stands to benefit as he plays alongside more guys so long as he makes the extra pass when he needs to, doesn't just gun everything. And I think we saw that late in the game. There was a moment where Bates could have pulled up for the elbow three, but he swung the ball to Dean in the corner for the corner three that Dean unfortunately missed. I liked that read. But my other concern when we drafted him was, even in Summer League, I didn't feel like he was very good at court awareness on defense. I felt like he got too fixated on watching his man and dives to the rim and back cuts would be happening behind him, and he just had no idea for moments. I think he made some excellent rotations. One time slid into the lane to shut off a drive to the rim, and in preseason, he's shown a a decent ability to offer weak side help defense, to try to alter shots from behind with his length. And and regardless of whether he's ever going to be a lockdown man defender, one of the nice things about these shooting guys that we have in these first two games, whether it be Struess or Nyang or Bates, is that you're seeing a lot more hands-on balls in the passing lane and broken up plays. And we may not have the rim defense with Jared Allen out, but I do think the Cavs are making up for a lot of it with understanding of where guys are going to want to go on the court. And maybe some of that is attributable to the fact that guys like Yang and Struess are so accustomed to knowing how to move without the ball to get to the spots where it's open that they can easily recognize it on the opposite end of the floor, on the defensive end, and it allows them to compensate for a lot of their athletic shortcomings. So Yang, it, I already feel completely confident when he pulls up that it's going to go in. I don't feel like... He had to do too much tonight, but to start two for two from beyond the arc, yes, he missed his next three. But again, going off the eyeball test, I feel completely comfortable with if he gets the ball and you give him space, he's going to put it in. And then for Dean Wade to replicate so much of what we would want from Yang, I said when he hit one of his many triples 
Excuse me, his many dribbles. Bang, bang, poor man's nyang. And that's kind of the way it feels. Dean is never going to be as efficient as George is from three. The other things he brings to the table with his size, with his better on-ball defense, those are all huge assets. He could force his way into the regular season rotation. And he could be a bit of a handcuff where maybe we don't use him a ton. But if he can replicate much of what Nyang gives us, then if Nyang goes down or if we have to rest him, we can just bring up Dean, throw him his minutes in the rotation, and not skip a beat. I'm knocking on wood because I hope that that's what transpires. But to be 6 for 11 from outside the arc, not only is that high volume, but it's over 50%. Fantastic. To the other guys, Okoro, clearly not the game that he had in game one. Game one, he was the story tonight. I think a lot of the other guys stepped up. And that's the big thing is that if we're going to play in a situation where we don't have Jared Allen, Damian Jones didn't exactly come to play tonight. I thought he struggled. Now, I thought Jones was pretty good in game one, but I think tonight is a good reminder of how we can take for granted Jared Allen's general consistency, playoffs notwithstanding. I know there's a lot of people who believe that, well, you know what, centers who are just cleanup guys, they're interchangeable. And $20 million is it's unnecessary for us to commit that much of our salary cap to Jared Allen. Well, nights like tonight are a reminder that There aren't many centers in the game who you can pencil in for a double-double while playing elite defense night after night after night. Now, in what might be the most obvious statement of all time, I feel like after these first two games, one would feel Dean Wade is more deserving of a spot in the rotation than Damian Jones. I don't think Jones has proven to be an exceptional rebounder despite his massive size, and Dean Wade was fighting for boards tonight. The main reason to keep a Jones in there would be matchup contingent, or if you believed that we needed his rebounding. And quite frankly, I don't think he's been exceptional on the glass. Now, in his defense, Orlando is a huge team, and they're a physical team, and they're, they should be very good. But this is only a soft indictment against Jones. It's more of a credit to Dean stealing the role away from Jones if this continues. Final line, 11 minutes, zero points, zero rebounds, 0 for 1 from the floor. So not a night to write home about for Damian Jones. Now, to the other side of the ball, Franz Wagner, fantastic tonight. Joe Ingles, Mo Wagner, super annoying with their physicality. Joe Ingles especially. I A man that upset, when you're that old, you're supposed to give up on life. But the fire he was playing with over an otherwise meaningless game was super irritating. Just bitching and moaning, and even got a technical in a preseason game, which should double your fine, in my opinion, for something that doesn't matter. But for Franz Wagner to finish with 18 points, did not miss a shot from beyond the arc, six for seven from the floor, 18 points on only seven shots, that is unbelievable. So great game for him. Paolo Bancaro, pretty quiet. Wendell Carter Jr., pretty quiet. We don't need to dwell on that. I want to touch on a couple other things. That's my thoughts on the preseason. We got to hit this Miles Bridges story. Well, I should, let me rephrase that. We need to address this Miles Bridges story. A man who this summer was in a precarious situation. He had essentially lost a whole year due to his domestic violence incident. The Hornets didn't re-sign him. They didn't waive him. The NBA was investigating, and it took almost a full year for them to hand down a 50-game suspension, 20 games of which they gave him credit for time served. So coming into this season, whoever he was playing with, which has turned out to be the Hornets, 
on a qualifying offer of eight to nine million dollars. He's going to be missing the first 30 games. I said at some point during the summer when we were feeling like, okay, who can we get? Who like who's gettable? Who could increase the talent level of this squad, but is attainable given our limited financial resources? Now I'm very happy with the way that we went, but I was fine with the idea of giving a player as talented as Miles Bridges a second chance, assuming he paid his debt to society and was punished for his actions. I'm not a moral arbiter of, you know, guys can't change, guys can't redeem themselves. And quite frankly, even if I was, professional sports is a scenario where if you're immensely talented as an athlete, whether I like it or not, you're going to get a second chance. So my feeling was if the Cavs can be the benefactor of that, they could potentially get a guy on the cheap who contributes far behind or far above, excuse me, his annual average value of his contract. And certainly at eight to nine million dollars a year, I think Miles Bridges is a much more talented player than that. But then this week, well, I, I log on to Twitter today and I see Matej, one of the listeners of the Fear of the Fro podcast, a Twitter friend, if you will, had tagged me and said, This your boy at Fear of the Fro Pod? Sure enough, Miles Bridges. In trouble again for violating a restraining order, smashing up his partner's car and windshield with pool balls from a billiards table, and uh, seemingly making me look stupid. Now, I will say one thing that makes zero sense to me is how it took the NBA to completely shift the focus of what seems to be a, a stupid opinion of mine to completely shift that focus. I found it odd that the NBA took almost a year to dole out a suspension. And based on the reports I've seen so far, they, nor the team, were aware that Miles Bridges had violated this protective order in January, three full months before the NBA announced their punishment for Miles Bridges. So now he may be subject to yet another penalty. But on top of the fact that the NBA is wildly unpredictable in terms of what punishments are going to be for guys like John Morant and how they handled Miles Bridges. And now they're in a situation where are they going to punish him again because they were unaware of the incident? And what kind of indictment is that against them that it took a year of investigation and they missed something that seemingly would be very public? I couldn't tell from the reports because it said that they were filed on the 11th and it said the date of occurrence was the 10th. But the incident supposedly happened back in January. So I don't know if the reason the NBA wasn't aware was, and I'm sure all of this will come out. Maybe even it has today since I last looked. And by the time you hear this podcast, you may be saying, Bob, not only was your opinion about Miles Bridges' dumb, lacking understanding of what a scumbag he is, but also you don't even get this court case. I'll be interested to follow it because the thing I think here as we're watching preseason is it's wild to think that after going through what they're going through with Miles Bridges, that rather than take Scoot Henderson, the Hornets selected Brandon Miller, who had the issues of providing a murder weapon last year in college, a team that should be so sensitive to the risks that come with taking a low-character individual. And maybe Brandon Miller is a great guy, but I would be so gun-shy from what happened, I would have gone with Scoot. And I think most people would have just based on talent. But good God, between that and now Kai Jones being waived for whatever the fuck is going on with him, things are weird. And Charlotte, very weird. The other thing I wanted to address was the NBA GM survey. Every year, NBA.com polls NBA GMs. 
I'd hear disclaimer. I'm unaware if they spoke to all 30 teams, but I would venture to guess no, because a couple of very notable things. They ask a whole bunch of questions, and some are about teams, some are about moves. The ones that were relevant to me, our boy Evan Mobley, got slighted big time. They asked questions like, who's the best defensive player in the NBA? Now, you would think Evan Mobley might not win that, but he certainly would be amongst the people mentioned. No, he wasn't in the top six, and he wasn't even amongst the guys who got one vote. Which begs the question, where was Kobe Altman during all this? Because Giannis, Drew Holiday, Draymond Green, Marcus Smart, Jaron Jackson Jr., Kawhi Leonard, Alex Caruso, Anthony Davis, Lugans Dort, and Rudy Gobert all received votes. Dort got a vote. But Evan Mobley did not get a single vote. I mean, if you do the math, if there's 30 teams in the NBA, Evan Mobley should get at least one vote. So slightly above 3%, but no, he didn't show up there. And then the question was asked, who is the best interior defender in the NBA? And Evan Mobley received just one vote. The second place finisher in defensive player of the year. Presumably, that's Altman's. But then again, how's that the case? If he didn't vote for him for best defender, then how would he have only voted for him for best interior defender? And finally, there was another question Who's the most versatile defender in the NBA? Now, all of us know full well, most contested threes last year in the NBA, Evan Mobley. Not to mention an insane amount of shots altered or blocked. What is more versatile than being able to stretch from three-point line to the rim? And yet, again, he did not receive a vote. Absolutely ridiculous. Dylan Brooks, Aaron Gordon, Marcus Smart. Mikhail Bridges, Draymond Green got 23% of the vote for most versatile defender in the NBA. But for Draymond Green to get 13% of the vote for best interior defender in the NBA, give me a fucking break. Give me a break. That is a legacy vote bullshit right there. There's no world in which Draymond Green is a better interior defender than Evan Mobley. And yet, in this survey, supposedly they are. Now, The last outrage, as it relates to defense, was the which is the best defensive team in the NBA question. You would think that the best defensive rating by the Cavs in the regular season, and then again in a series in which they lost 5-1, to but still finished the playoffs with the best defensive rating in the NBA, that this would be an easy answer. And yet, the Cleveland Cavaliers finished behind the Boston Celtics, who had nearly 50% of the vote, the Miami Heat, the Milwaukee Bucks, and the Memphis Grizzlies. The Cavs got just 7% of the vote. So I'm loading up my slides. Unfortunately, this is just a survey. I love when people say it in soundbite form so that I can use it on this podcast. But understand, if you're looking for a chip on the shoulder, the NBA GM poll is a good place to start. And I think the hard questions have to be answered. So Evan Damrell, Spencer Davies, all the guys who have access, I want you to ask Kobe Altman. I know you're not going to. I wouldn't do this either. I'm talking out of my ass here. But I would like to know how it is that Evan Mobley received one vote for best interior defender of the NBA, but zero votes for the best defensive player in the NBA. Answer the question, Altman. 
Okay, let's wrap this up. This podcast has gone on long enough. Next up for the Cleveland Cavaliers, they're taking on a team whose name I can't pronounce, Maccabi Ramnanana. I expect to have absolutely zero to contribute in terms of a scouting report. I'll leave that to the more competent podcasters. But what I will really be gearing up for is opening day as the Cavaliers take on the Brooklyn Nets and we get to see just what kind of renaissance is actually happening with Ben Simmons because the reports are he looks spry, he looks healthy. I'll be back with more. I didn't really even get to address everything I wanted on this podcast, but we're already at 38 minutes. That's a fucking eternity for me. I like to do it tight 30. Thank you to everyone who listened to the podcast. I'm Bob Schmidt, lifelong cab fan. Thank you for the ratings. Thank you for the reviews. And thank you for being a part of the Fear the Fro podcast. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.